0: This is a time of year when a lot of us are thinking about giving and receiving gifts. Uh, and In fact, one of the best memories from my childhood is when the Sears' wish book came in the mail. Does anybody know what I'm talking about? You have to be a certain age to actually understand that reference. But, but I would get the Sears' wish book and lay on my tummy because I could barely lift the thing. You know, it's like 900 pages thick. And I would take my pen and I would circle the things that I wanted, most of which I knew I would never get. But it was just the process of wishing for something, dreaming about these toys that made that part of the year so special. Today our children put together a wish list, maybe in a bit of a different way, but there are certain things that they want. They want for Christmas, they want for their birthday or whatever the case may be. And it occurs to me as I open the Word of God that there are certain things that the Lord wants to see out of His people, that God has a wish list too. And there are many items on that wish list when we read the scriptures and see what it is that God wants. And in the time we have together today, I want us to think just briefly about three of those items that are on God's wish list. The first of those is found in Matthew chapter 12. If you'd like to turn there in your Bibles, Matthew chapter 12 This is the passage of Scripture where Jesus and his disciples are passing through grain fields and it's the Sabbath day and the disciples are hungry. In fact, from the context, we know they're not just hungry, they are starving, probably in a way that you and I, most of us, cannot understand. And so they began to pluck grain and eat it on the Sabbath and the Pharisees see them doing this. And the Pharisees had already decided that even though, even though the Bible does not describe what work on the Sabbath is, they had decided that plucking grain was one of the things that constitutes work, and therefore, this was wrong. And so Jesus gets into a conversation with them, and toward the end of that, in verse number 7, quoting from the prophet Hosea, Jesus says this, And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, You would not have condemned the guiltless. One of the items that is on God's wish list for the world today is a little less judgment and a lot more mercy. Wouldn't you agree with that? There is a lot of people in the world today who look at the behavior of others and they want to judge. They want to point the finger. They want to find fault. It's almost their default setting to look for the error in others. It's all over social media, it's all over the news. Sometimes, unfortunately, it even gets into the church. When God looks at the world, He says, okay now, how about a little less judgment and a little bit more mercy? As people of God, we should not be able to do anything but show mercy because that is the very nature of God. In Isaiah chapter 30 and verse 18, the Bible says, therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you and therefore He exalts Himself To show mercy to you, for the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for Him. The idea of God exalting Himself, we, we have this expression, we need to be the bigger person. We need to rise above. And that's what the Bible says that God does. If God gave us what we deserve, none of us would have a prayer of standing in judgment. But because God is bigger than that, He rises above judgment and sinks to the level of mercy for the world, none of us has to face death. We can all face eternity with the hope of a home with God because He is merciful. And so if the very nature of God is to show mercy, should that not be what God's people show to our world in our society today, one of the problems that the world has is they are almost designed to show judgment rather than mercy. And religion doesn't help. In fact, some of the worst atrocities that are committed in the world today are done in the name of religion. In fact, the philosopher Blaise Pascal has this to say, Men never do evil so completely and cheerfully as when they do it from religious conviction. Now I believe that's true, but I also believe it's sad. That in the world today, people will commit the worst evils and atrocities in the name of their faith. Some of them in the name of the Christian faith, some of them in the name of other faiths. But shouldn't it be the case that our Christianity leads us to be more merciful, more forgiving, more gracious, more kind. In James chapter 2 and verse 13 the Bible says, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. When I understand that God has been so merciful to me, I'm going to be a lot less likely to be judgmental toward others a lot less likely to find fault. But if I reject God's mercy or I I feel like I really don't need God's mercy because I'm, I'm just that good, you see, I'm going to look at others seeking to find fault. God looks at the world and He says, come on, how about a little more mercy and a little less judgment? In the book of Jude, the Bible says that even in the church, this is how we ought to treat one another. In Jude, verses 21 through 23, three different Times, the Bible uses the word mercy here to explain how we ought to interact, especially with those members of the Lord's church who are struggling. The Bible says, commanding us, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. It is the mercy of the Lord that leads to life. What a blessing that is. Going on, and have mercy on those who doubt. I can say this about myself, it is easy to judge the doubters. The people who are asking the questions, the people who are challenging the biblical traditions, people who are doubting what God has set forth in His Word, it's easy to judge them and to think ill of them. The Bible says, have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. God lays down as the way forward for His people to deal with those who are struggling, to deal with those who are unfaithful, is to show mercy first and only as the last possible resort to show judgment. One of the things on God's wish list is mercy and not judgment. Number two, we find on God's wish list, God wants true worshipers. If you look at John 4 and verse 23, This is a passage that you know well. Jesus is speaking to the woman at the well in in Samaria. And there's a lot of disagreement between the two of them. They're from different religious traditions that are similar yet quite distinct. There are a lot of theological differences between Jesus and this woman. And so Jesus cuts right through that and he gets to the heart of God. This is what God wants the most. And we often interpret this, I think, in a way that is really different than how Jesus intended it. The word truth in the Bible, just as in modern English, is used really in two different senses. There's one sense in in which the word truth is opposed to that which is false. It is what is right as opposed to that which is wrong. This is what we derive from facts, from commandments, from things that appeal to our intellect. If you know these things, then you're going to know what's true. That's not what Jesus is talking about here. There's another sense in in, in which the way the word truth is used in the Bible. And that is someone who is genuine. Someone who is authentic. In in fact, uh, George Strait had a song, Girl, my love for you is true. What does that mean? That means it's genuine. It's real. I'm not faking anything. This is from the bottom of my heart. And that's what the word true means in this passage Jesus says, but the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is looking for, God is searching for, God desires. On His wish list are those who are willing to worship Him with a pure heart and a genuine faith. It's not easy to find in the world today. It's easy for us to to act one way on Sunday around our brethren and to act a different way through the week. To say things in retaliation for perceived injustices done to us rather than to respond the way Jesus Christ would respond. One of the things that I find interesting is that the word humility comes from a Latin word that literally means ground. Ground. G-R-O-U-N-D, ground. And that's an interesting thing, isn't it? What does that actually mean? Well, first of all, the ground is always going to be lower than everything around it. And so if we are to be humble people, we need to make ourselves lower than everyone else around us. But the second thing is that it is the property of the ground to be trampled all over, isn't it? And if we are humble people, we are willing to allow people to trample over us, to offend us, to spit on us, to treat us with disrespect, because we realize we're not any better than anyone else. The fact of the matter is, if we're pure, genuine worshipers of the Lord, then what we give to God on Sunday is a natural expression of what's in our life. It emerges from our character Philo of Alexandria says, genuine worship is that of a soul bringing simple authenticity as its only sacrifice. I had a teacher in school, and he preached all over the United States, and he said that he would frequently ask churches, what are you looking for the most in a preacher? Boy, you would think that would be a question that would spin off a variety of answers, right? He said it wasn't. He almost always heard in one way or the other this answer, we want a preacher Who's genuine? We want a guy whose life matches his preaching, who practices what he preaches. That's all we want. We don't have to have the most educated guy. We don't have to have the most dynamic guy. We don't have to have the best minister we could possibly find day to day. We just want somebody who lives his faith in a real and authentic way. That's what the world wants, too. The world looks at much of Christianity and they say, hypocrites. What does the world see when it looks at us? Does it see people who are true, people who are authentic, people who are genuine worshipers of God? Or does it see what it sees when it looks at itself? Worship, Jesus says to this woman, is not about the place. It's about, instead, the person. In Isaiah chapter 1, this whole chapter is about this same problem. And beginning in verse number 11, the Bible has God asking the question... What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. Now wait a minute, God, I'm a bit confused. Did you not say in the books of Exodus and Leviticus and in Numbers and Deuteronomy, did you, did you not say you wanted all those things? We're giving you exactly what you said you wanted. So God, what's the problem? Isn't that the way sometimes we want to respond? Lord, we're we're worshiping exactly as you tell us in your word, so what's the problem? The problem is doing everything right in external form is not enough. It's about transformation of character. It's about a purity of heart. Notice he goes on. Look at verses 16 and 17 of Isaiah 1. The Lord says, Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds From before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. God says you're doing everything I asked you to do, but you don't care about each other. You're doing everything I asked you to do, but your sins are so stacked up that your sacrifices can't get through. Maybe you felt that way in your life. I know I certainly have. There are times where my life is so discordant with what God wants that there's no way my prayers could get up to heaven because my prayers really don't get out of my own head. I'm not willing to change. Maybe some of us are that way sometimes. The Bible tells us what God wants as much as anything else is people who are willing to worship Him in authenticity and genuineness to be true worshipers. But we know the third item, at least the one that we're going to talk about today, there are many more of course, on God's wish list. God wants the salvation of the world. That's all God has ever wanted. Since before the foundation of the world, He was working on the plan and He is continuing to work on the plan even today. Notice in the book of 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 4, the Bible says in these verses that we know so well that God desires, God wants, God wishes all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. That's what God wants. On His wish list, number one, I think, the salvation of the world. Notice in 2 Peter 3 and verse 9, we read much the same thing. The Lord is not... I memorized this in the King James, so I'm going to have to read it from this version. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not willing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. What's God's will for the world? The world's salvation. Does our will align with God's will? Is that what we want most out of the world? Is that what we want most about, uh, from our friends? From our lives? Is the world salvation? Paul was willing to do whatever it took in order to bring about the salvation of just a few souls. Jesus is willing to do whatever it takes to bring about the salvation of just a few people. Can we say the same about ourselves? In John 3 and verse 17, the Bible tells us God did not send His Son in the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Why did Jesus come to this earth? Well, He came to live a perfect life. That's right. Why did Jesus come to this earth? He came to die on the cross. That's right. He came to rise again on the third day. That's all true. But all of that was aimed at one singular goal, and that is to make possible the salvation of the world. That was the only thing God really cared about then. And it's the most important thing to Him even now. Notice that Jesus understood the same thing in His life. There were a lot of things Jesus did that were good for the people around Him. He fed a lot of hungry people. And it is good to feed the hungry. Insofar as it depends upon us, if we know people who are hungry and we don't do anything about it, shame on us, the love of God is not in us, 1 John says. Jesus fed a lot of hungry people, but Jesus was not about feeding the hungry. Jesus healed a lot of people who are sick. And insofar as it depends upon us, we need to do what we can to take care of those who are ill and if possible to bring about healing in their lives. I think it would be harsh not to want that. But Jesus was not about healing those who were sick. He was about one thing above all others. He says in Luke 19 and verse 10, what? For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. That's the one thing Jesus cared most about. Everything He did were means toward that end. Do we want what Jesus wants? Do we want out of our lives what He wanted out of His earthly life? And then of course we go to the apostles and isn't it the case that they were all about the same thing? In the latter part of verse 22 1 Corinthians 9, Paul says, I have become all things to all people that I might by all means save some. Paul was a realist. He knew that there would be many people who, re- who would reject the gospel. He knew there would be people who would not want to hear him preach and those who did would mock it. That's what we're told at the end of Acts 17 after Paul preaches in Athens. Some people made fun of him. Have you you ever been made fun of for the practice of your Christianity? Ridiculed and mocked for what you believe and how you live? The Apostle Paul was. But despite all of those things, nothing shook him from the one singular focus he had in life to bring about the salvation of just a few. Now the question, of course, is not what these people were about. You read about their lives you read what Paul wrote, you can see very clearly that their mission in life is perfectly obvious. The question is, do we have the same mission in life? Are we willing to learn another language and move to another country to share the gospel with people who have never heard it? Are we willing to sacrifice some vacations and toys in order financially to support a missionary who may be in need, who's baptizing people every day who've never heard the message of Jesus, Are we willing to give any of our comforts up to see the salvation of just a few people? Or do we kind of like things the way we have them? Are we willing to walk across the street and invite a neighbor to a gospel meeting? I saw the other day 54% of Americans say that no one has ever invited them to a religious service. What would your friends and neighbors say about you? Do you want what God wants most out of the world? I ask you today, what's on your wish list? What are the things you want most for yourself out of life? How are you pursuing those goals? What are you doing in order to reach what you want the most? What do you want for your family? And how are you setting things in motion so that you can accomplish what you want the most for your family? Oh, we save for years for our children to go to college and get an education and build a career. We think so much about developing our earthly lives and building our resumes and making the best, most comfortable life for ourselves on this earth. And we do a pretty good job at that. But how many of us dedicate ourselves equally to planning for our spiritual development? And most of all, do we really want what God wants? Does our wish list match God's? And if not... Why not? Maybe it's the case that you're here this morning and you look at the things that are priorities in your life and boy, they just don't match the things that you find in the Word of God. We want to encourage you to think about that today. To think about addressing that imbalance. Maybe it's the case that you have wandered away from the Lord and you need to be restored. We would love to pray with you and for you to encourage you in any way we can. Maybe it's the case that you've never become a Christian. You've never confessed your sins before others, repented of those sins, and put on Christ in baptism for the remission of your sins. Can we encourage you to think about making that decision today? There will never be another decision greater than that one if you're willing to do that. If we can help you in any way, would you come now as we stand and sing?